As we begin the year 2017, world population sits at almost seven and a half billion. We're adding more than a million people to the planet every week, and in the process, inflicting irreparable damage on our life-supporting ecosystems. Hi, I'm Dave Gardner. Welcome to the Overpopulation Podcast, project of World Population Balance. You can learn more about us at worldpopulationbalance.org. Historically, some of the most infamous efforts to reduce fertility rates in order to avoid or reduce overpopulation have focused on the poorest people in the world. Many people are aware that fertility rates in industrialized countries like the U.S. are at or even below replacement level. Meanwhile, the 10 nations with the highest fertility rates are all poor nations in Africa, and those rates run between 5.8 and 7.6. But what if I told you the biggest overpopulation problem is in wealthy societies like the United States, Australia, Canada, and Western Europe? Well, my guests today are Colin Hickey and Jake Earle, two doctoral candidates and teaching associates in philosophy at Georgetown University. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Dave. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Great. In October of last year, 2016, the two of you, along with Travis Reeder at Johns Hopkins, published a paper titled Population Engineering and the Fight Against Climate Change. Now, in the last Overpopulation podcast, I spoke with Travis Reeder about the personal moral obligation to conceive fewer children. Today, Jake and Colin have graciously agreed to talk with me about the pros and cons and intricacies of altering public policy to influence family size decisions. Now, gentlemen, this paper argues that the threats posed by climate change justify population engineering, as you call it, the intentional manipulation of the size and structure of human populations. Now, I think we all know human overpopulation impacts many things, traffic, aquifers being pumped dry, fertile soil depletion, ocean dead zones, to name but a few. You chose climate change. Why is that? Uh, great. Thanks, David. This is Colin. I think I'll step in for a second here. Um, the central reason, I think, to take on climate change with respect to concerns about population is because it's sort of most likely the widest scale threat to human well-being over the next um, over the, the next at least century beyond that as well. Um, it's in some ways the the sort of umbrella environmental challenge, the magnitude of the harms, the scope of the harms, how climate change is produced um, implicates and exacerbates um, basically every other environmental concern. Um, so it's the kind of multiplier of you know, food shortages, water availability, public health and disease uh, control efforts, um, you know, geopolitical concerns, um, sustainability of marine ecosystems, habitats, the things you mentioned, um, pollution, biodiversity, landscape preservation. So um, in some ways, all of the other major environmental concerns and a lot of other public health concerns are all implicated by um, how we deal with and how well we um, mitigate and or adapt to the threats um, already happening and impending um, threats from climate change. Well, that makes sense. And I guess in many ways, that seems to be one of the most urgent ticking time bombs we face, or at least we know about, that's for sure, huh? Yeah. Well, 
how did you guys reach the conclusion that reducing population can be a significant strategy against climate disruption? Uh, this is Jake. I think I'll, I'll take this one. So we began these conversations a couple of years ago. Um, Colin, his main research is in climate change, but I was sort of a, a neophyte at that time. And one of the things that struck Colin and Travis and I was that, um, you know, it's pretty well understood what drives climate change. And uh, one of the main causes is just uh, population growth. Um, so climate change is caused by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Um, and the amount of greenhouse gases can be calculated by looking at um, per capita emissions of carbon, methane, other, other uh, warming gases, and uh, then the number of capitas, you might say, how many people are emitting these gases through their activities. And one of the things that struck us was that, you know, very, th there's very little attention paid from the policy perspective about addressing this enormous factor that's driving global warming. So we thought, well, why not? And uh, what, what could be done to address this? And, you know, would it be morally, uh, morally advisable to do so? Well, we'll get a little bit into the reasons why perhaps uh, no one was really addressing that, uh, which which kind of makes me chuckle. You guys just decided to wade right in with the uh, swim with the sharks, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, but can you can you give us an idea of how uh, you know kind of like a percentage how significant this could be uh, if we were to decide to focus on reducing family size? Sure. So you know, this is a this is an issue that's been um, understudied. There have been a few studies, though, by climate scientists. One one figure that we've that we've come across is that um, you know reducing population growth, say by uh, changing our growth rate from the the UN's medium projection, which is now projecting that by twenty one hundred there will be slightly over eleven billion people on the planet, to the low projection which would reduce fertility uh, by an average of 0.5 children per woman, that would result in roughly a, the same number of people that we have now by 2100. If we were to follow that sort of pathway rather than the median pathway, um, by 2050, we could see anywhere between 15 and 30% reductions in expected emissions. By 2100, we could see as much as a 40 to 60% reduction in uh, expected emissions. And that's if we do nothing, nothing else to mitigate climate change. And that's um, just so, a 0.5, that's just a 0.5 fertility rate reduction, which, Just you know, a 0.5 fertility rate reduction, which has huge implications over, over the century in terms of the number of people, but right, not a, not an enormous reduction by any means. Well, you may have just answered my question. I was next going to ask about this, uh, you know, swimming with the sharks comment that I made a few minutes ago, that it does seem that advising people on how many children uh, it's ethical to conceive seems to be a pretty st sticky wicket these days. So I was going to ask you, why not just concentrate on all the other ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Anything to say about that? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll step in. This is Colin again. In looking through this and trying to figure out, you know, whether it would be permissible to to take on, you know, again, this um, this population concern that, you know, people have, again, been reluctant to step into, one of the things that, that we think is really important is to look at the alternatives, uh, ways of addressing and mitigating and adapting to climate change without addressing population. And so in, in doing this, we, we sort of take the lead from the IPCC and look sort of at the, all of their strategies that they have come up with 
in you know they've run a bunch of mitigation scenarios to try and generate you know proposals that wouldn't overly burden the economy that would deal with reducing uh, greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere to prevent the worst sort of most dangerous effects from climate change and so they they propose and, and we in the paper we call this the sort of consensus approach to tackling climate change in a way that doesn't address population in any significant way. And so the the sort of consensus approach that comes out of the IPCC involves trying to basically decarbonize the energy supply, increase energy and greenhouse gas efficiency in, um, in other economic sectors, taxing and pricing greenhouse gas production, trying to set up ways of altering consumer behavior and lifestyle. So, you know, that might be getting a hybrid, switching to a vegetarian diet, those kinds of things. And, you know, sort of better planning of settlement patterns, transportation systems, those kind of sort of big uh, systemic changes. And I take it the, the we, have, we have a number of reasons why we're skeptical that that alone is enough or we should rest comfortably with that sort of consensus approach by itself. And so I'll, t- I'll take you through some of our reasons for, for having some concern and thinking that we need to at least open the door to the conversation about um, addressing population with respect to dealing with climate change. So the first thing is that the, the consensus approach that's laid out in the IPCC, that uh, the Paris Accords uh, you know, sort of agreed upon, at first sort of take the threshold for trying to prevent dangerous climate change to be at around two degrees. So they think if we can, if we can avoid two degrees warming, will be you know, avoiding the worst of it. And so the first thing to note is that, and now there's, there's sort of consensus coming out of a lot of political bodies and climate scientists that even if we sort of do all of the measures that require us, or that are required for us to prevent a two degree warming, that that's not really enough. That that threshold still risks far too many harms um, to human populations and to the environment broadly. So, so we think that just taking the consensus approach isn't might not be enough to get us to two degrees, but even if it, you know, to, to prevent us from going over two degrees warming, but even if it could, and remember that getting there, um, if you sort of followed the, the IPCC and the Paris Accords, getting to two degrees, even accomplishing that will require much uh, more significant reductions than what was already been agreed upon um, in the international negotiations. So that's the sort of first step. The second step is that even if that threshold works, the two degree threshold works, in the IPCC, all of their mitigation scenarios to try and get us there leave as high as a 33% chance that we still cross the the two degree threshold, that we still have all of the harms that come from crossing it, even if we radically decarbonize the energy supply in all of the ways that they recommend. And so we're concerned that that probability is much too high. We think we should do, we shouldn't be comfortable with it. We should do what we can to try and uh, reduce the, the chance that we cross that two degree threshold. And the last two things that I'll say are that uh, in, in estimating what we need to do without addressing population, the kind of consensus approach that I outlined a second ago relies on a lot of technological assumptions that we're not particularly comfortable with. So it relies on um, wide-scale adoption and deployment of carbon capture and storage technologies, usage of nuclear energy. Uh, Right now, we just don't have the carbon capture and storage, and so we don't think it's a good idea to bank our sort of climate change mitigation hopes on 
a technology that we don't have and can't use. And then, you know, nuclear energy has its own um, political hiccups as well. So those are sort of, sort of some of the main reasons. We're also, we like to point out that it's important to, to recognize this, the sort of consensus approach that is outlined in the IPCC to try and deal with climate change without population. They are recommendations that are produced that usually are sort of over-optimistic because there are a lot of political pr pressures and economic interests in the negotiating parties that, um, that negotiate these international agreements. And so we think that there's a lot of room to be looking for alternatives to, to sort of help the cause, as it were. Well, you mentioned uh, political pressures and economic interests, and you know, and I just want to kind of add a footnote that uh, you know, the, I think one of the biggest hurdles, uh, both in the setting that causes us to set timid goals and then makes it really hard for us to even even meet those, is that we have this obsession with economic growth. And so, as hard as as it is to bring ourselves to start talking about uh, overpopulation and and trying to affect fertility rates and family size decisions, it seems like it's almost even almost harder for us to talk about scaling back the size of our economy as a reaction to climate change anyway. Yeah, that's usually not, not a good political talking point <laughs> given the climate as it is now. No kidding, no <laughs> kidding, no kidding. Well, uh, you know, many people assume, let's go back to population now, many people assume that any effort to reduce population would take way too long to make a meaningful difference in time to avert disaster. And I think that's one of the things that's contributed to the, to the silence. But you just, I think people might be pretty astonished at what you said about how just by 2050 or by the turn of the century, we could see a significant difference. Yeah. So one of the things that um, that is interesting is generally when people think about population change, people who are even very well informed, they realize, oh, there's population momentum. So mm -hmm. the sorts of natural changes that we see in fertility that result from, you know, higher incomes and increased um, literacy rates among women, for example, uh, those do take a long time. But active interventions, things like providing people um, with uh, birth control, providing them with reproductive care, um, and some of the perhaps more radical uh, policy proposals we've considered, can can reduce fertility at a rate that can you know significantly change what the world's human population looks like in terms of size, you know, in, on the fifty to one hundred year time scale, which you know, coincidentally is the sort of time scale that we're looking at for the critical uh, climate changes um, that, that we're facing. Yeah, so it, it, it really doesn't take that long to change e even the, you know, the size of the world's population by billions of people. Yeah. Yeah, it could, in some ways, it could just take nine months. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, if we got serious, yeah. nine months yeah. from, you know, if we got serious tomorrow, nine months later, we would start to see a difference. Absolutely. Interestingly, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned in the paper that policymakers and moral theorists alike have been reluctant to wade into discussions of population policy. So why is that, do you think, and, and what do you have to say to them? So I'll, I'll take this one. This is, this is Jake again. One of the interesting things that we found in, in doing research for this, for this project is that you know, there was a lot of discussion about different sorts of population control efforts uh, around the middle of the century, you know, lots of studies, lots of political and, and uh, philosophical debate about these sorts of policies. And then it all got kind of quiet um, after, after the 70s. One of the reasons for that is that, you know, we saw in, in a lot of the policies that were actually implemented in places like China, India, 
Singapore, Peru, and elsewhere. These sorts of pol policies had a lot of negative effects. People ended up uh, being coerced and having abortions. These policies you know, overburdened um, poor people and minorities. There were a lot of nasty side effects of these policies. And I think that um, this resulted somewhat in, in, the, in the policy and, and, and uh, uh, political discussion uh, with an overcorrection. So, you know, we saw that, ooh, these policies result in coercion and rights violations. So, therefore, no sort of policy that interferes with people's reproductive choices or influences people's reproductive choices is morally permissible. So, we shouldn't talk about them and we shouldn't address them. And I think that uh, that, that indeed was, was an overcorrection. Um, and it's led a lot of people to overlook other sorts of ways of influencing people's reproductive decisions that you know, are, are morally permissible and might have lots of great consequences in terms of public health. Well, that's a pretty good uh, quick uh, thumbnail sketch, I think, for us. Thanks. Thanks for that. Let's go through the four types of in interventions that you identify in the paper uh, that could effectively reduce human fertility rates. Maybe you could enlighten us a little bit about the, uh, the spectrum you identify and just really briefly, you know, kind of enumerate what our options are. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll step in here. This is Colin again. Um, so yeah, so we want to we try and draw out like a lot of public health interventions. We want to draw out uh, ways of sort of categorizing types of interventions that we could that we could employ to sort of achieve desired effects. And so we think that interventions basically can be arranged on a scale with respect to how risky they are for sort of amounting to or resulting in coercion. So we we lay out sketch out four categories that we call sort of choice enhancement strategies, which we think has a, have a really, really low risk of coercion. Um, basically, they're not going to be coercive at all. These are the kinds of things that, that most people are okay with already, right? We're okay with expanding education access. We're, we're okay with funding family planning services, public health efforts that sort of allow people um, medical resources that would, that would allow them to, to, to family plan on their own. These are the kinds of things that are sort of widely supported, don't risk being coercive really at all. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are the sort of really coercive interventions of the kinds that showed up and sort of tilted the historical discussion away from thinking about population um, mm -hmm. policy significantly. So these are things, you know, like forced abortions, forced sterilizations, things that result in really serious harms and, and uh, moral wrongs. And then we think that there is a sort of uh, a range in the middle that if done wrongly, can risk being coercive or morally problematic in other ways, but we think aren't in principle wrong, that could be justifiable, and if designed the right way with contextual features, paying attention to sort of local effects and, and whatnot, we think that they can be justifiable. And so we call these two categories sort of preference adjustment interventions and incentivization interventions. And so I'll just say a little bit really briefly, and I know we're going to talk more about about the sort of moral defense for these kinds of um, interventions later. But, but when we're talking about sort of preference adjustment, I mean, we can think of uh, a number of strategies to try and influence people's behavior. So we, we're trying to sort of think of ways of getting people to adjust their preferences to encourage them to have uh, fewer children, right? And so we can think about this category as a sort of way of changing cultural norms and sort of influencing individuals' beliefs and desires with the goal of getting them to sort of change their procreative behavior. So these are the kinds of things that you might think of as sort of mass communication strategies, right? Mass media, radio, TV content, billboards, poster campaigns. You know, podcasts. Podcasts, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
you know, theater, you know, uh, artist work, that kind of that kind of stuff, right? You know, funding for public lectures, and you know, maybe we'll talk about this more later. But there are a bunch of different ways in which we can do that, and some of them are more and less problematic. And maybe I'll hold off and, and talk about some of the the sort of moral concerns later, and and touch really briefly on incentivization strategies because this is the other sort of middle category that we think can go wrong if it's designed improperly, can have a risk of coercion, but um, but also can be, we think, morally defensible, which, again, we'll argue, sort of present the argument for a little bit later. But incentives are really about sort of directly altering the, the cost and benefit balance with respect to um, individual sort of reproductive de- de- decisions and behaviors. So there we can think of things like, you know, paying people to take a family planning class or paying people to fill their birth control prescriptions. Those are what we call sort of positive incentives. And then on the other side, we can think of negative incentives, um, which we can talk about some of these distinctions later too. But things like, you know, taxes, uh, other kinds of policies that directly alter sort of the the costs or benefits associated with with having children. Does that provide us with enough of a start to, to dive in? Yeah, that's great. This is so fascinating. I think this incentive uh, conversation will be probably one of the most interesting parts of this dialogue that we'll have today. So we'll definitely circle back to that. Um, you, you guys being in the philosophy arena, you bend over backwards to really seriously evaluate the consequences of, of any of these things and the, the, the uh, how ethical they are, how moral they are, how, how, dis- how uh, intrusive they are in terms of people's rights, I guess I would say. And uh, uh, frequently, I think, in your, you know, when you're explaining how you would defend some of these, you mentioned that right now the, the balance of incentives really is tilted in the other direction. You care to comment on that? Right now, there, there tend to be, in really in most countries around the world, there are financial incentives to uh, incentivize having more children. Sure. So, so th- one of the things that we noticed in this research, and you know, looking at objections to policies aimed at influencing people's reproductive choices, is that people who think that you know we shouldn't we shouldn't have such policies seem to think that uh, reproductive choices now are made in a vacuum, that there aren't strong cultural, social, uh, religious, um, and even institutional pressures to have more children than one might have had were those pressures not in place. So when people level the charge against us that, oh, well, these sorts of policies are going to violate people's reproductive freedoms, their reproductive autonomy, one of our one of our responses is to point out, well, look, people now, it's not clear that the decisions that they make are entirely autonomous, Um, uh, especially especially in the developing world, um, where in addition to these sorts of pressures on decision, lots of people don't even have the resources to take actual control of their own reproduction. So in, in developing contexts and in the developed world, um, we don't, we don't really think that we live in a world where, you know, full reproductive autonomy is realized. And indeed, perhaps having some uh, policies that push in the other direction could counteract uh, some of these pro-natalist policies and, uh, and cultural forces that, you know, influence and distort people's own decisions and their, and their, uh, their reproductive values. 
You mentioned when you were laying out this uh, the spectrum of uh, potential uh, interventions, uh, the the the, easy, the low hanging fruit, the easy stuff that is uh, has really low risk of uh, being coercive or being problematic. The choice enhancement stuff that that sounds so uh, unobjectionable. Although there you can always find someone who's going to object to just about anything, but that just is so unobjectionable. Why not just stay there? Why do you make the case for interventions that are even moderately? Uh, more uh, risky in terms of coercion. So I think the the main reason is that you know we as we said before you know looking at the looking at the data looking at the the projections for you know how how quickly would we need to reduce fertility in order for it to make a significant impact on climate change it's just that choice enhancement isn't enough you know like with any other sort of policy intervention it takes a while to get these things set up you know, it, it, it will take time um, and, and we don't have a lot of time. So in terms of efficacy, we think that choice enhancement, even if we could get it set up very quickly, um, the effects, the, the adoption rates uh, would be too slow to be able to have a significant effect on climate change. So that that led us to look at, you know, um, at, at these other uh, types of policies, the preference adjustment um, and incentivization policies. And, you know, the, the closer we looked, the more that the more that we found, yeah, there there are there are good policy alternatives within these categories, and and we use these sorts of policies all the time in other contexts. Colin mentioned a number of types of policies, but you know we we have public information campaigns um, to try to get people to stop smoking or to uh, get tested for uh, sexually transmitted infections. We uh, you know do all sorts of things um, to incentivize people to say see their primary care physician. Or, or even to go to the gym. <laughs> we do all sorts of things to affect people's decisions about their bodies and about their health in order to uh, you know, promote public health and, and even, even sometimes to promote um, in, environmental values. And so we thought, well, you know, maybe there's not a big difference between you know, these sorts of uh, preference adjusting and incentivizing policies that we do in other contexts and uh, using these sorts of policies uh, to affect people's reproductive decisions. In the paper, you guys do a great job of analyzing the kind of the differences in, uh, you know, all the different considerations, depending on whether you're talking about a, uh, a developing population in a developing country or a population in the industrialized world. And, and isn't it true that the, uh, the, the biggest greenhouse gas emitters today are in the, the wealthy nations, the, the overdeveloped uh, nations of the world, and they have less, uh, there's less of a deficit of choice enhancement. They already have more access to education and better better gender equity. So that would kind of force us to move farther along on the spectrum because of the urgency that you just mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, Dave, that's exactly right. That's one of the other sort of main reasons why, you know, we in the paper think that we're justified in looking beyond the sort of easier to defend choice enhance, enhancement strategies. Because as you pointed out, and you, you mentioned this actually in your, in your opening, in your introduction, that the the biggest effects, while there are still gaps in access to contraceptives and family planning services in you know, the United States and the developed world, it's the, the sort of bang for your buck is much smaller there than it is in the developing world. And so to get any inroads in populations where the per capita emissions just swamp out the per capita emissions in some of the developing contexts, I mean, sometimes, you know, 
10, 50, 200 times greater emissions by the average American than some people in uh, you know, poorer people in developing nations. Right? The way to reach them to adjust and try and change reproductive behavior in those populations where we can achieve much greater emissions reductions per child avoided, we think the strategies that would actually be efficacious um, just sort of by necessity go beyond just the mere sort of provision of contraceptives, family planning services, choice enhancement strategies that, as you said, are already sort of, while not perfect, decently um, well attained in some developed contexts. But at the same time, you guys do a really terrific job, I think, in the paper of uh, addressing uh, why we shouldn't just ignore those uh, populations that have currently very low carbon footprint, but, but high fertility rate. You want to comment on that? Yeah, sure. So I think, I think, again, there are a couple of reasons for why we need to look at basically everybody's a sort of, you know, all hands on deck approach and not just look at only the strategies that would affect, you know, wealthy people in the developed world. And so the, the, the couple of reasons I think are basically as follows. Now, we just know sort of predictably as a matter of, you know, the sort of empirical data that we have that these developing nations will continue to develop. They are developing and will continue to develop. And while there's been a little bit of a tempering in some contexts of how intense with respect to greenhouse gases all of that development actually is, in most places, especially over the next 50 to 100 years, that development is going to come with net greenhouse gas emission increases, right? So when you lift people out of poverty, which we think is a moral necessity, it's a moral requirement, people are um, facing really serious deprivation and injustice by being in absolute poverty. But when you lift them out, right, usually you have an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, and we're going to see that predictably in, in wide swaths of the developing world. So it's both true that they will develop in these contexts, and they should develop. I mean, life of absolute poverty is something really, really, really we need to avoid. And so while the the sort of you know per capita emissions avoided per child avoided are smaller initially in the near term in these some of these developing nations that have low carbon footprints right now over the long term they matter because these are big populations increasing in wealth so that's that's one part of it uh, the second part is just thinking sort of generally going back to our 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 sort of four category uh, spectrum of types of interventions, we think that you know any broader population engineering program is going to have to include developing nations, no matter what, with respect at least to the choice enhancement stuff, because those are you know the education, family planning stuff that we've talked about. Those sort of are obviously going to be justifiable to deploy in in developing contexts because they're autonomy enhancing, because they um, benefit. Uh, individuals in those contexts. So no matter what, they're going to get linked in by just the sort of choice enhancement stuff. And then as we'll talk about later, we think that, you know, some of the incentive category and some of the sort of preference adjustment media campaign strategies, those also can be choice enhancement, uh, or sorry, can be choice enhancing. So we think that there's a sort of moral good provided for the individuals as well as this sort of uh, the development happens and and the more emissions developing nations take on, the, the bigger gains we get from dealing with population stuff there now anyway, even though emissions right now are, are lower. 
Yeah, I want to put my spin on it. This is really just kind of repeating what you just said in a different way. If we don't plan on keeping the developing world poor, then in a hundred years, those populations are going to be significant challenge, huge. And um, kind of coupled with that, boy, what if we had started working on population a hundred years ago? Wouldn't we be in a much better place today? So it's just foolish to uh, to to ignore a population with a really high fertility rate uh, because it's got you know we know just because of the mathematics of exponential growth that's going to, that that's going to eventually be a problem. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just flag here, and we'll talk about this later as we sort of develop what the the sort of broader vision is. And, but just to put a, a little point on it here, given that the sort of question is well, so why we we know we can get a lot of uh, carbon reductions by dealing with the developed world, but and, and the question is why deal with the developing world too? Is it's important that with respect to our proposal, that not all of the same strategies are going to apply in every context, right? So we're going to have a different sort of network of of intervention strategies depending on the context, um, and so what, we can talk about that a little bit later. But um, but I think that's important to to flag here is that we think we need to address them all, but we'll address them in slightly different ways. Differently, sure, sure. Okay, so before we get back to the uh, uh, the incentives, let's talk about uh, the other part in the middle of the spectrum, the preference-adjusting interventions. You know, some people, some objectors, uh, you know, could just object to some of that as psychological manipulation. Can you address that? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in again here. Yeah, so uh, this is good. I mean, so I think uh, there's, there's a real worry that, that people have, which is that, you know, so even if these kinds of communication strategies, media efforts, even if they're not coercive in the sort of strict sense, that they might still be morally problematic, that they might still violate autonomy rights, even if they don't make people worse off or anything, they might be manipulative. And so we can sort of think, you know, along the lines of what, you know, concerns we have with brainwashing or propaganda, yeah, um, yeah. that... That, you know, it, it, propaganda, brainwashing, they don't have to necessarily make the person that's brainwashed worse off, right? They don't have to, strictly speaking, coerce them into doing something. You don't have to threaten them. You don't have to close off options and make it, um, you know, you don't have to, you know, point a gun to their head and tell them to do something. But there still seems to be something problematic with respect to the individual making a, an autonomous choice. And so, while I think, I mean, there are legitimate concerns about some kinds of strategies that might be sort of classified along with the strategies we're talking about that could be called preference adjusting, um, preference adjustment interventions. We think the things that we've actually outlined, it's pretty easy to avoid some of the, the, the sort of worst forms of interventions that might be, might be really manipulative, might sort of look more like brainwashing or, or the kinds of things that we would actually have a moral problem with. So most of the really problematic forms involve deceit, trickery, false information. And we don't really think we need any of that. The kinds of strategies that, that we defend that I laid out a little bit earlier, you know, are again, really about changing cultural norms. And right. So if we're talking about radio, podcast, TV content, billboards, right, a lot of this, and there, you know, historically, a number of cases of this through India and radio programs in Africa and Mexico, sort of telenovelas, that that you know sympathetically show characters changing their views about the ideal family size, or mm -hmm. that you know de depict family planning and you know sort of spacing of, of children apart, or you know restraining childbearing. 
showing some of the hardships of having too many children, just sort of casting small family size in a positive light, suggesting role models or suggesting ideas and narratives that people can can empathize with, that they can identify with and sort of see these, you know, see as an option, sort of open pathways. And we don't really think that any of that looks like the kinds of concerns that would be really manipulative, the sort of brainwashing, really propaganda forms that require deceit or trickery. And sort of, you know, importantly, Jake sort of gestured at this a little bit ago that we accept these kinds of interventions in all sorts of other settings without thinking they're psychologically manipulative or without thinking they're brainwashing. So we do this with sexual health, with STD education, right? Jake mentions, you know, sort of anti-smoking campaigns. Advertising generally is like this. And now there might be some problems with some advertising, but if the kinds of strategies we outline all count as psychologically manipulative, then I think the worry is that way too many things would count as psychologically manipulative and sort of everything would be morally problematic along these lines. Yeah, but you don't see anyone objecting to, uh, you know, a just say no to drugs poster or even like the Rosie the Riveter posters, you know, during the during the war effort. Everybody that that was clearly propaganda designed to influence public behavior. Right. With no objections. Right. I mean, well, yeah. And I was going to say, there's, let me add, there's plenty of propaganda right now. There's plenty of pro-natalist propaganda out there right now. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so Jake was sort of talking about some of this stuff um, a little bit earlier. And, and yeah, we, so, you know, along the same lines, we think that in some ways these can be correctives, right? These can be correctives to sort of, to, you know, resettle the debate. So it's a live option that people aren't, you know, immediately shamed at the prospect of not having kids or, or, or pressured by, family pressured by religious institutions, pressured by, you know, culture broadly, or, you know, pressured by tax code, you know, these kinds of things we think can be correctives for some of those pressures. Okay, well, let's move on to uh, incentives. This is going to be an exciting conversation. And, and let me just maybe kind of throw a light a match here and, and say that, you know, it's kind of hard to engineer around the fact that negative incentives are probably are definitely more likely to influence the poor than they are the rich. I'm personally not sure that that is is an ethical or moral problem. Um, but but you guys seem to take a very very kind and considerate role, and you consider all that and go through a lot of. I mean, you guys jump through a lot of hoops trying to. You don't really prescribe a specific system, but you do lay, kind of lay out a framework that you think would help guide us to being uh, as fair as possible. So, so I just wanted to kind of throw that out as a, uh, a spark to the conversation, and then just let you guys kind of explain uh, the framework. How, you know what you kind of arrived at regarding incentives. Yeah, so I'll take conversation on this one. Good luck, um, so, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. So I, I think that, yeah, our, our discussion of incentives is probably one of the most controversial parts of this project, in part because, you know, a, a lot of the worst policies, uh, you know, uh, regarding uh, population in the 20th century involved some sort of incentive scheme, often with, uh, you know, government officials deceiving people about, you know, the nature of, of, you know, what's what's required to get these incentives and what the risks involved are. You know, India, you know, had, has a has a tumultuous political history with with these sorts of programs. Um, 
One of the things that, you know, just just picking up on Dave, your your remark about poorer people being more easily influenced um, by negative incentives. We think that that's right. They, they would be more easily influenced, um, you know, if we were to say uniformly tax people for having, uh, you know, more than one child, that would absolutely uh, be a regressive tax. It would much more easily influence uh, poorer people than richer people. We also think, though, uh, that it carries a much larger risk of coercion, a uh, much larger risk of actually violating people's, you know, bodily bodily rights and, you know, uh, and reproductive rights to, to place that extra burden on the poor. And additionally, we think that we could accomplish a lot of the same sorts of goals in terms of reducing fertility through positive incentives. You know, so, so when it comes to incentives, we've kind of adopted this, this general sort of guideline of uh, carrots for the poor, sticks for the rich, where the sticks are understood as, as sort, of a, sort of a last resort. We think that we could go a long way with, with the other policies. But really that, you know, when, when thinking about um, incentives, we reserve the negative incentives, those that, you know, uh, reduce some kind of benefit that people had access to previously for wealthier people, people who can bear the cost in some more robust way than, than poor people can. Well, you know, I know I'm going to get in trouble for what I said, so, <laughs> uh, and, I, and, I, and I didn't say it well. I guess what I really meant to say was that I don't want to pick on poor people, and I certainly don't want to come up with policies that would, uh, that would weed them out in some kind of, you know, new age eugenics program. That's certainly not what I have in mind at all. But I, but I do feel like we need to eliminate the uh, subsidies that socialize the cost of having more children uh, somehow. But at the same time, I really... I mean, can can we find a way where we can really beat up on the rich people who, you know, no matter what we throw at them, it seems like, you know, Mitt Romney's going to be able to afford to have a large family. How do we influence the family size decisions of people like Mitt Romney, for example? So so this is a great question. And, and you know, we've we've gotten this challenge uh, before. So negative incentives would be very effective um, for poorer people. Um, and it seems that they would be less effective unless we want to leverage very, very large disincentives for wealthy people. You know, we, again, as you pointed out, we haven't worked out all of the details. We do think, though, that, um, you know, incentives should be structured progressively just because it will take fewer incentives and generally positive incentives will be more effective, sort of the lower on the income scale you are. You know, as you move up to medium income, maybe we you know drop sort of all positive or negative incentives um, and then as we get to the higher income brackets, that's where we start introducing, say, negative incentives for higher order children. Now, gr granted, we we know that uh, the Romneys are a great case, right? So very wealthy families who are just dead set for whatever sort of reasons on having, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight children. You know, y likely they will bear the costs of any sort of, you know, non-coercive negative incentives that we could offer. However, we can also get a lot of money out of those people, a lot of money <laughs> that can be put toward um, other sorts of efforts, um, you know, funding reproductive health care for poorer people or other climate change mitigation efforts um, globally and domestically. So in some sense, you might say that uh, what we're what, what we really think would be useful, even if we can't influence all that strongly, um, very wealthy people and, and their reproductive decisions, we can at least have some sort of carbon tax, you know, there. Uh, their reproductive behaviors. I do want to give you a chance to maybe explain a little bit about how you kind of work out something that you think would be uh, as fair as possible to uh, 
to people who are you know closer to the poverty level. Can you outline that for us? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that um, and and again, you know, it's it's worth it's worth distinguishing talking about um, people who are in poverty, say in a developed nation like the United States, and people who are um, in poverty in various uh, places like Tanzania or or Zambia or or places like that. You know, it's a very different kind of poverty. But we do generally think that when it comes to to poor people, you know, we we prioritize choice enhancement. So giving people the tools that they need just in order to make the decisions uh, that they want to make with regard to how many children that they have. Um, so making reproductive health care, birth control, uh, giving them information about family planning methods, the benefits and drawbacks of those methods, uh, making that available to them. Generally, you know, poorer people have much less control over their own reproduction than than wealthier people. We also think that uh, poorer people, again, both domestically and uh, internationally, are going to be much more influenced by the various preference adjustment media campaigns that that Colin was talking about a moment ago. These are much more effective for people who uh, are tend to be uh, uh, less educated um, and tend to be less informed about these issues already. So we think that you know, for, for all we know, and again, we're not we're not policy experts. We would like to get policy experts to weigh in on this. For all we know, it might be possible that people living at or near the the federal poverty level in the United States that only those policies would do enough to significantly reduce their uh, their fertility rates or, or reduce them enough that we can say, well, now we can focus our efforts elsewhere. But then beyond that, you know, we also envision positive incentives that would be uh, targeted at, at poorer families um, to, to get them to make decisions that, or, or at least consider decisions that might be in their best interest with respect to, to making uh, their families smaller. So, you know, incentivizing or giving families some sort of payment for taking family planning classes, uh, incentivizing women to see a primary uh, primary care physician um, or uh, or a gynecologist um, on, on a regular basis. Um, these are sorts of interventions that we know that when they're done regularly tend to reduce people's fertility rates. And it's one thing to make them free or lower their cost. It's another thing to say, well, you know, we'll give you a we'll give you a two hundred dollar credit or something like that for seeing your gynecologist once a year um, or for taking one of these uh, family planning classes. We think that that could that could do a lot to really change behaviors. But again, you know, something that we want to point out internationally and even somewhat uh, so domestically in terms of uh, bang per buck, uh, you know, it's it's wealthier children that go on to produce more greenhouse gases. Um, so in some sense, you know, if we have, you know, one dollar to spend toward one of these policies, and we could choose to target, um, say, you know, reducing fertility of a, of a wealthier person or reducing fertility of a, of a poorer person. We might want to target the wealthier person to see if we can lower their fertility, because uh, that'll just have a, a larger effect on uh, reducing uh, greenhouse gases. Good point. But I guess I still want to focus one more question on the uh, on, on the poor in the in the over already overdeveloped world, because uh, there's. You know, frequently, uh, conversations among sustainable population advocates will pop up where they talk about the fact that we've got these, uh, uh, you know, we've got the wrong kind of incentives in place now. Right now, we've got child tax credits and we've got income tax deductions and welfare payments that almost, you know, amount to, uh, you know, have another baby, get a bigger check. Uh, you know, and a lot of that's designed to make sure that uh, the welfare of those children is uh, better. Um, so would you advise that we consider making adjustments to that at all? 
So, so I think that this is a this is a really great concern. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the problems with some historical policies aimed at reducing fertility, Singapore, as an example, comes to mind. The policies they implemented in the '70s and early '80s is that you know if you target behaviors sort of at the wrong point in time or in the wrong point in the life cycle, you end up just harming children. Um, so, for instance, Singapore had a policy where um, you know if you have more than some designated number of children. Um, then your children are going to have, uh, they're not going to have the same access to, to good public schools. Um, so they had a lottery system in place. And so, you know, your, your students will get a, a worse lottery ranking if you end up having too many children in your family. We, we tend to shy away from policies like that in part because, as you pointed out, these sorts of policies would hurt children who are not, you know, liable for having been born. Not their fault. <laughs> they didn't choose the family that they were born into. We think that one way to, to get around and to mitigate this sort of problem is specifically to target what we call upstream behaviors. So, you know, the, the positive and negative incentives being targeted at, you know, behaviors about, you know, how to reproduce, when to reproduce, how, you know, when when to get healthcare, what kind of information people are getting before they say become pregnant, um, before they decide, yeah, let's have let's have our third child. And again, you know, when when it comes to talking about poorer people. The threat of coercion is is much more significant. You know, a, a three hundred dollar uh, penalty is going to affect you know a family making thirty five thousand dollars a year much more heavily than that same penalty will affect a family making twice as much or three times or four times as much. So, in a way, the answer maybe is obvious, but maybe not. Maybe you just wrote that paper to tweak us a little bit. <laughs> do you do you think we're ready for this conversation? <laughs> good, good question. <laughs> and maybe you've changed your mind, you know, just based on the reactions uh, to the paper since it was published, too. Yeah, you know, so I, I suspect Jake, Jake and I will both um, say a little bit on on this. You know, it's it, it's interesting. So I, you know, I I focus on um, climate change and global justice um, in my sort of central research. My my doctoral work is on that. And so often people that work in climate stuff, it's hard for us to be particularly optimistic and it's easy for us to slip into cynicism. And, you know, so I, I think my honest answer is not totally sure. However, you know, even even though sort of politically we've seen some, some discouraging uh, outcomes recently with respect to thinking about how to deal with climate change, recognizing its reality, much less it, its magnitude and dealing with the sort of morally justifiable ways of trying to uh, avoid the most dangerous effects. So while there are sort of, you know, political obstacles, the, you know, public opinion towards addressing climate change is more positive. And, you know, when we do sort of deliver over these arguments to charitable readers, people are sort of like, you know, more sympathetic than I think we originally thought we might get as responses. We've gotten, you know, plenty of, of, you know, climate deniers that aren't particularly happy, <laughs> but, you know. But there's been some, I, some surprisingly positive response, huh? Yeah, you know, and I think I think partly some of this might come with respect to some of the, you know, pronatalist uh, atmosphere that we have out there. That, that I mean, I think some people are kind of looking for this conversation to be raised again, for permission to sort of break away from some of the pronatalist norms, right? And younger people sort of making their, uh, you know, family planning decisions right now, like, I, you know, I, I think people are open at least now to, to thinking, thinking through some of the pressures that existed and 
for them to have more kids than they wanted. And now like it's in some ways for some of the people that have been in touch with us, like a kind of, you know, relief to hear people talking about and maybe trying to, to um, shift some of these norms to, to produce less pressure on them to have, you know, kids that you know, make the grandparents happy and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I'll just say, and I'm sure, you know, Jake will probably chime in here too. I mean, so I, I think that there's a lot that needs to happen for us to sort of fully be, be ready to both have this conversation and to think about implementing some of it. And, you know, some of the, the strategies that we're, we're talking about and, you know, we acknowledge in the paper and we want to sort of reiterate here how important it is that, you know, we get the input from demographers and social scientists and public policy folks and, you know, We've sort of tried to lay some of the philosophical, you know, moral theoretic, you know, groundwork. But in order to sort of really tackle, you know, a population engineering program with the framework that we've sort of tried to lay out that we think is like morally defensible, I mean, we we need a lot of a lot of help, a lot of data, a lot of um, you know, media, a lot of further sort of intellectual investment in this issue and in these concerns. So do you think the timing is good then? Do you think you might have hit, picked the right time where uh, you didn't piss everybody off and uh, <laughs> we can move, move, take this dialogue and start uh, developing it? I, uh, I, yeah, go for it. I, I think I can say with some certainty that we haven't pissed everybody off. Um, <laughs> we have gotten a lot, of, a lot of very positive, a lot of very encouraging feedback. A lot of that feedback is coming from people who have been paying attention to the population issue for decades now. You know, it's been very um, humbling and, and encouraging to get uh, support from a lot of those people. Um, and, and also we've heard back from a number of people who work in empirical fields, you know, in in policy planning, uh, in demography, who now think that, oh, well, now I can actually look at these issues because they're not, you know, you guys have given us an argument that they're not morally taboo. And I think that, you know, this is in some way unfortunate. I think that in one way the public is ready in part because the population is growing at such an amazing rate. You know, I remember it wasn't that long ago when uh, Earth's uh, population passed six billion people, and it took even less, uh, or it will take even less, to pass the eight uh, the eight billion mark. So I, I think that people are seeing that. I think that people are now seeing the effects, the early effects of climate change, and unfortunately, you know, as a species, we didn't really act quickly enough to address climate change uh, without addressing population. I, I, I think that might have been possible at some point, but unfortunately we didn't do that and so here we are. So I think that you know, in, in some way that th those members of the public who acknowledge the real, uh, dare I say, existential danger posed by climate change are now going to be willing to listen to what, you know, some years ago would still sound like, you know, completely off the wall, radical solutions to the problem. And I'll just add in, it, it, it was interesting. So I've, I've actually sort of taught this material in two classes. I taught this, this population climate change material in an environmental ethics class that I was teaching and in a global justice class that I was teaching. And I was, I was interested and surprised, you know, so not, not just the sort of people that have been paying attention to population, you know, for a long time since the seventies or, but, you know, I have college-age students that, that I was sort of surprised, actually, how receptive and sympathetic they were to the argument, you know, um, once, we, once we worked through it. And so, uh, you know, and I think there might be a number of 
sort of reasons or explanations for why you know younger audiences are more more receptive than than others you know climate change has been a force for their whole development and and lives you know maybe it's because they're not thinking about having kids yet but 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 they sort of you know have often a better sense of the the climate science and they're also going to have to live with the consequences for longer periods and sort of more dramatically deal with them than us or my you know grandparents etc and so that was that was encouraging to see you know when when we can sort of dwell on the argument, you know, in the context of an academic setting and sort of go through it where it's not just, you know, a headline, you know, that's wild philosophers think that we need to change the population. When people see the arguments we laid out here, people I think are are much more receptive and sympathetic. And so I think then, you know, part of preparing us to sort of take advantage of the moment that, you know, we've seen some good climate change mobilization, right? So we saw what happened in Standing Rock. We saw the People's Climate March, right? There, there's energy. There's great work that organizations like 350.org are doing to mobilize around climate change. And we, with respect to that energy, we think that if, if we can, you know, communicate, educate people about the kinds of arguments we're talking about here and show some of the limitations of the non-population strategies and some of the risks that we face by, by not trying to address population concerns. I think the more exposure the idea has, the more education we can have to to communicate that there are morally defensible ways of doing this, right? That it doesn't have to all be the sort of horror nightmare stories that we've seen historically when people start thinking about population control, right? If we can change the script, change some of the, the sort of uh, atmosphere around thinking about population to get away from some of the the horrors that were really, really serious, egregious moral wrongs and rights violations, but to show that there are alternatives that still tackle population, you know, I think people are are willing to be receptive to to these ideas in this in this sort of you know political moment that is. Well, it definitely sounds pretty optimistic. So, maybe one of my last questions for you then might be. Where do we go from here? Uh, and it may be a different answer for preference adjustment than it is for incentives. Who do we need to expect to, to make these changes, or how do how do we start to make these things happen? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> this is a no, tough question. No, Dave. Truly, You're not your job. It's not your job. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like we, we've done the work, hand it off, and you know, let other people take it from here. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I'm joking. Um, so yeah, that's a, this is a tough question. Um, I and I'm not I'm not totally sure how to give a, a, a satisfying answer. So we're of course continuing to work on this issue. We've got a follow up paper, but there's only so much that you can accomplish in sort of you know in academic journal settings. So I you know I think especially with respect to the to the sort of in, preference adjustment informational campaigns. I mean, in some ways, right, we, you know, we, we need information, media, communication services, right, to support these kinds of efforts. Um, mm-hmm. And we need the, the funding from people that would be sympathetic. I like, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of power that people in positions of, you know, of celebrity have, that people in positions of media have. And with respect to delivering over the the sort of information and playing out the role modeling and opening up 
scripts where people can think of it as a possibility to have fewer children. My sense, at least, is that we need a lot of help from from media and people with power in media. And yeah. Jake, I don't know if, if you want to talk about the the incentivization. Yeah, I mean, so so one of the things about less so with with the preference adjustment policies that that we were talking about, and but um, but still, it's still an issue. But even more so with incentives is that you know it 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 doesn't. It doesn't do much work to incentivize people to do something if they then don't have the tools that they need to do it. So you know, we can talk about, say, incentives for people to, you know, see a physician. But you know, if they don't trust physicians, if they don't know how to find one, if they don't, you know, speak the same language as the physician, then you know, all those incentives are are going to be uh, for naught. Um, in some sense, we recognize that all of these policy proposals that we're recommending. Um, need to come together in some kind of package. And in some ways, choice enhancement lays the groundwork in a, insofar as that um, gives people the tools that they need um, to take control of their own uh, decisions. So I, I think in terms of political priorities, um, something like, and I, I think that there are a lot of authors who agree with us on this for an, a lot of different reasons, um, something like a global program um, aimed at giving people, just, just giving them control over their reproductive lives is, if not a prerequisite, then something that needs to be done in tandem, say, with implementing preference adjustment and uh, incentivization policies. But, but again, you know, to I think Colin has said this before. You know, we don't know. Um, you know, we're not. You know, we're not. We're not economists. We're not policy experts. We're not demographers. We're not climate scientists. We're just humble moral philosophers. <laughs> so I, I think that the next proximate step, and you know. We, we would love if someone um, would reach out to us is to actually figure out, all right, well, what would the what would the fertility targets be over the next few decades? And then once we have that information, you know, how how much and how quickly would we need to reduce fertility? And then what kind of uh, climate change payoff would that have? Then we can can start pegging policies and, and start seeing, OK, well, Here's here's the set of policies we would need to you know see this kind of decline in fertility in the United States or in China or in 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 uh, sub-Saharan Africa you know in within this time period. Unfortunately, there's just a lot that we don't know at this point. So if I let me know if I if I hear you right that we need to just you know continue and step up our efforts in choice choice enhancement and preference adjustment and that will eventually hopefully get us to a point where it is possibly politically realistic to start talking about the uh, the incentives which it's safe to say would be years away unfortunately it may not be that far away yeah. um i mean I'll, I'll say this for myself i don't know if colin or, or if travis would agree with me in the united states and in, in a lot of other uh, nation states there are pronatalist policies policies aimed at encouraging people to have more children. I think that we could do away with those policies or implement policies to mitigate the effects when they're not policies, but say, you know, cultural cultural factors. I know that Russia and Singapore have recently implemented such policies. I don't think there would be much risk of rights violation or of uh, coercion or harm to reverse those policies. I, I think that that's a that that's a first step mm -hmm. step uh, in changing changing the incentives. 
but yeah, aside from those, I think that we are, you know, maybe a, a little ways off yet um, from figuring out, okay, well, well, what kind of incentive structures um, would be just and which ones would be efficacious for actually dealing with the problem at hand. Great, yeah. great way to put it. I think that that I think that that is um, is definitely more likely to be true for the incentives side for sure too because I, I think that there are actually are and you know sort of right now prior to doing much else without very serious risk of injustices without risk of manipulation without risk of rights violations I think there are things that we could do right now with respect to the the um, choice enhancement stuff um, where we don't really have to have to figure out much more research because um, mm -hmm. the, the the cost, the initial investment is really low. I mean, it, it might even be none if we convince the right people that then go out and take public stands on things, right? So the the sort of power, again, going back to this, but the power of celebrity. So imagine if if we convince some of the biggest voices in, in, in sort of popular culture and in the way that, say, Leonardo DiCaprio has taken on climate change, right? created a, a documentary, goes and speaks at the UN, goes and speaks, right? If you start having, you know, campaigns coming from people that have been convinced by the argument, right, that, you know, open up these options that try and ad adjust norms and values, I think we can do that, you know, right now, if if people are willing to take up that mantle. And so, you know, I'm, I'm putting a lot on on sort of media, but of course, like any good activism, like any good strategizing, grassroots campaigns also matter. They matter in in sort of more significant ways, as a matter of fact. So I don't want to sort of uh, take any of the the power away from from thinking about you know organizing and trying to just you know educate and get people on the ground, grassroots level thinking about some of these preference adjustment strategies, but I think some of that we can do without much further research. All right, Leonardo DiCaprio, did you hear that? Give me a call. Give me <laughs> yeah, a call. <laughs> you can reach, yeah, you can reach me, Dave Gardner at worldpopulationbalance.org. We've been talking about the, uh, the paper that was published last October, Population Engineering and the Fight Against Climate Change. I want to mention that uh, that, that's not one of those papers that's only existent, in, in existence behind a paywall somewhere, that it is pretty easy to find that. My advice would be, if you Google that, uh, you'll turn it up. I don't know if you guys have a, a better, easier way to point people to that if they want to read that. That's the best way. Yeah, that's the best way. It's, it's, you can find it on any one of our academia.edu profiles if you, if you Google it. It's also linked to on an NPR story about the work. Um, but yeah, if you if you Google it, you'll you'll find it. Easier. Okay, and you mentioned a follow up paper. When when is that going to be published? It's currently under review, um, so we don't know, but we'll okay. be sure to let you know. <laughs> That's great. We will look forward to that very much. Well, thank you much, uh, Colin Hickey and Jake Earl. Fascinating conversation, and it's about time that we had it. Great. Thank you so much for having us, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Appreciate your time. Well, that's it for this edition of the Overpopulation Podcast. Uh, please visit worldpopulationbalance.org to learn more about how we can solve world overpopulation. And at that website, you can actually sign the Sustainable Population Pledge. You can listen to all our podcasts, get on our email list, and you can even make a donation tax deductible in the U.S. to support our work. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Dave Gardner reminding you when you're planning your family, Big small.